I hope that's a promise you can sing and mean even on Sundays when it seems like the world is falling away or days in your own life when it feels like everything's falling apart in your life. Can we sing that, that His Word will stand when all the world seems to be giving away? Well, there are moments in the li- in church life and seasons and Sundays and times and when you need, just need to address something. You just need to talk about something. When you need to adjust whatever is currently even scheduled and change course for the sake of the church, for the sake of the body. This morning is one of those Sundays. This past Sunday, when, or this past Sunday, when we gathered for worship, there was a congregation halfway across the country who was gathering as well. And as we've already mentioned this morning and prayed, I'm sure everyone saw the news this week, last Sunday probably even, about the terrible tragedy that took place in Sutherland Springs, Texas. We'll forego the, the uh, details for the sake of even any young ears that might still be in the service, but by any description, it was a catastrophic outbreak of evil. A horrific act of evil. And I know many of you this week were grieving with this church and maybe have been throughout the week and praying for this church throughout the week. And that is right to do. That is right to do. To respond with empathy and prayer when terrible things happen. The Scripture tells us rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So we do that. Scripture tells us there's a time to weep when things like this happen. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. As Christians, it's right, it is right to weep with those who weep. It's right to mourn when sadness happens, when evil breaks out. It's right to grieve evil when it strikes or when suffering comes or when loss happens in your life. It's right to do. Because we're called to suffer together, to mourn together. We're one body. We're connected that intimately. To grieve together, to comfort one another in suffering. As Jesus even comforts us. And yet, and yet, we don't grieve and have to experience evil and suffering exactly as the rest of the world does. 1 Thessalonians said, Paul was speaking to them, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul was pointing them to the resurrection and the hope that gives us. We are those who, yes, grieve, yes, mourn, but grieve in light of Christ, in light of eternity and the resurrection. We have an eternal hope. We don't grieve as others. Which transforms our here and now and can transform our our grief if we allow it. It's not forever. Grief is not forever. But it's also clear that even though we grieve, and we have truth to help us persevere and have hope in trying times, it's only normal to ask, what? Why? 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 It's natural. As creatures made in God's image, it's natural to ask why. We're made as moral creatures. We're made as as rational creatures. And so we look for answers 
to all life's questions, to, to why. Answers to evil in the world. And this is a big question. Why did this happen in Sutherland Springs, Texas? Or why ultimately this tragedy struck your family at a time? Or evil impacted you? And it is a problem for Christians. It's a big problem. It's a big question. Evil is a real problem. But not just for us in this room, for our kids that left too. Even our kids, they're thinking in those terms. I was reading a little children's Bible last night with our kids and one of my children. We were reading and it talked about how after Adam and Eve had, been, uh, had sinned and been kicked out of the garden, that God placed these warrior angels, the book called them, in front of the garden. So they couldn't go back in. One of my kids asked, you know, Daddy, why didn't God just put warrior angels in front of that tree? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. It's a problem. The dilemma usually looks like this or some form of this type of objection against or to God. Maybe you have it today. Maybe you've experienced it. Is he, is God, is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? If that's the case, then he's bad. He's malevolent. He's just a bad, evil God. Is he both able and willing? Then why? Then whence? Then why evil? Why? Philosopher Hume asks that. It's basically saying he can't be all good and all powerful because look at it. I mean, look at the evil we have. How could he be all good and all powerful? Look at our world. It's the most difficult question we have. It is the hardest question we have. Every, and every Christian and every Christian theologian and pastor knows we don't have all the answers. We don't. God has not given us all the answers, and we, we shouldn't speak where God hasn't spoken, but He has spoken. And I think there's hope in His Word today. And His Word is clear. If we, if, if we believe anything from last week, from 2 Timothy, that the Word is from Him, it's His, it's all-sufficient, He even speaks to the problem of evil for us today, right here, right now. But it's something we've got to wrestle with. We have to. How do different groups wrestle with it? Atheists, I think, kind of think by denying God, they can ignore the question. Life is just a cosmic accident anyways, but it really doesn't make the problem go away, does it? It's still there, still probably nagging. So even the atheists can't get away with it. They just kind of kick the can down the road, right? Just kick the can down the road. Or Eastern religions which say evil's just, it's just an illusion. Tell that to those in Sutherland Springs this week. Right? Or tell that to one of us and you on the heels of some loss or suffering, that it's an illusion? Christian scientists believe that too. Or how about our world, kind of secular Westerners, we just kind of attempt to avoid that topic or just rationalize it away. You know, it's just caused by systemic oppression or economic injustice. And now those things exacerbate evil, and Christians should be caring and loving and address those things. But Utopia is not going to come through policies. Utopia is not going to come through technique. Uh, Policies aren't going to rid the world of evil. They might help restrain, and they should, 
It's a big problem, isn't it? It's a big question. And, but we've got to be ready, don't we? First Peter says we have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in us. But also, think about it now, on a real practical level, we also need hope for real-life suffering, don't you? I do. In our real suffering. Because if anything, the problem of evil and suffering is first and foremost an emotional one, isn't it? For our human experience of suffering. Before it's ever, you know, a thought, intellectual, rational one. No one likes pain and suffering. And because it, because it causes such uh, deep, kind of almost visceral emotions in us, doesn't it? Evil is a real problem for us. Well, my hope today is to do both. Address not only our minds and our intellect and challenges there, but also our hearts for real life help with suffering. And I think they're connected too. So grab your outline if you got it. Have your Bible open. It's a little different today. We're going to be jumping around to a lot of passages. There's going to be a lot of slides popping up today. Maybe you just write references down so you can go back to them later. It's going to be a, a, kind of a different morning today, but I just felt it warranted it today to take a little detour. Well, we're going to be reminded of three truths that are going to help us remember that God's mercies from Lamentations we read and we sang, they're new every morning, even in suffering, even in the midst of dark days. Three truths we're going to hear. And our first one's this. Evil and suffering are they're the result of the fall. And I think not actually an argument against God. They're the result of the fall, not an argument against God's existence, which is what Hume was saying. can't be. It can't be. Well, what is evil? If we're going to talk about it today. If we're going to address it today, we should really have a working definition for it. What is evil? What is it? Is evil that which uh, bothers us? Not necessarily. Or is evil is it evil because it causes us to feel bad? Not really. Evil is that which is ugly. Because it's compared and contrasted to the ultimate good, God. So we're going to tell our, our definition for today is going to be this: evil is anything that displeases God. Anything that displeases God is evil. It's the ugliness we see in ourselves, and others in the world because it's compared to something ultimately good. It's anything which displeases God. It was clear from the Garden of Eden now, clear from the Garden of Eden, what would displease God. Really clear. He made it really clear. It was just one thing. Not to eat from a certain tree. Take a look at the verse. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what happens? We know. They defy God's kingship over their life. They rebel against their Maker, bringing evil and sin and death and suffering into this world, and then they pass it on to everyone else who was born after them. Right from the garden. And a few generations later, here's what we see. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's devastating evil. And evil increases as it did then, and it was all pervasive 
and its intensity increased as well, so much so that God is, is grieved and He responds, as we know, with Noah and the flood. We get to the New Testament. Paul's still proclaiming all humanity is sinful. All humanity is desperately lost and in fact turned away from God. These are heavy words. He says, none is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one seeks God. No one's righteous. No one's done good. It's a desperate situation. Absolutely desperate. And Jesus agrees. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave. Slave to sin. Humanity's been born captive from the fall. Born captive. Enslaved to sin. Ever since Adam's sin. And this is actually the norm. This is actually the norm. Evil is, and evil comes. That's the norm. Evil is, and evil comes. And yet, I don't know about you, but I find myself shocked, surprised, stunned, sometimes even paralyzed in my own life when suffering comes to me. Do you? I think this Ligon Duncan quote says it well. We live, since we live during a time in which some of the sufferings of this world have been mitigated, it means lessened the intensity of, they've made less. Some of the sufferings have been mitigated for us. We're, we're lulled to sleep sometimes. And, and we're surprised by suffering. When pain comes into our experience, our initial reaction is, this shouldn't be happening. But if what I'm saying is true, that suffering is, that suffering happens, that suffering is the norm for this fallen world, None of us should ever be surprised by suffering. So then we either respond, I do, with shock. I do. Or I respond with questioning that God is really in control. Or maybe even His goodness. Or that He may have a bigger purpose and so I despair. I find myself, do you find yourself there ever? The feeling of despair. Why? Why? Well, given that this is true, that evil is, it exists, and it's real, we actually should be surprised that it's held at bay by God so often. So often. And the things like last Sunday are still relatively rare. We should be surprised that it's held at bay so often. But many times, many use this, and sometimes we're tempted ourselves to make an argument against God. We're tempted to do the same thing. Here's what that argument looks like. Uh, J.L. Mackey, another philosopher, said this, if a good God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. What he's saying there is, you know, in other words, I I can't think of a good reason why this would happen. And since I alone can't think of a good reason for this, there must not be one, and there must not be a good and all-powerful God because there's no good reason. On the surface, you look at that, though. You're like, okay, may, yeah, I can see how you get there. But you start to dig a little deeper underneath that. That's a huge step of faith, actually. That's a huge step of faith. That's a lot of trust in my own observation and my own brain power. I can't think of a purpose, so there's no way there is one. In many ways, the existence of evil, I think, actually, is 
not this kind of argument, but actually is and can be an argument for God. How do I know what evil is? Why do I have such a visceral response when it happens? Why do I know that it's the norm, but it shouldn't be the norm? Why? Why can we all look at something, regardless of who we're at, what our faith is, religious or secular, and say that is evil? It's what displeases God, the ultimate good. I definitely understand the temptation. I think we probably do as well. Because on the surface, what we see when we look at evil looks absolutely pointless. It does. Without reason. And on the part of perpetrators of evil sometimes, I mean, there's, there's no good motive. Nothing in it. We may not say the same thing, but I know I wrestle with it. And I find myself grumbling when a, even a little minor inconvenience happens or find myself questioning God, or find myself angry with God, or, or find myself wrestling with a bit of doubt again, and that's normal and that happens. We are still fallen. But it doesn't mean there's no God. I love what um, Keller, we quote him from time to time, said. He was a, in, a, in a chapter addressing the problem of evil. He said, if you have a God, great and transcendent, that's all powerful, enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, And you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. See what he's saying there? He's saying that if you've got a God who's big enough, powerful enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and and yet you still have it, he's also probably big enough and powerful enough to maybe have some reasons that you and I can't see all the time. You know the story of Joseph from Genesis, suffered some of the greatest evil of anybody who's existed probably. Hated by his brothers, wanted dead by his own family, sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused once he got there, thrown into prison for years, wasting away in a prison cell, seeing others get freed and he's not, and he ends up ruling Egypt and saving his family from starvation. What do you think his attitude would be? What would my attitude be? And yet here's his words. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's staggering. It's absolutely mystifying that he could say that. That he could look at his life and look and see what his brothers had done, what his brothers were responsible for, and yet say God was working behind it. And God was working through even the evil actions of Joseph's brothers. God doesn't do evil. He does not. He doesn't love evil. He does not. He doesn't take pleasure in watching us suffer, but he uses it. He uses it. Joseph knows God was working through it. He doesn't blame God. He goes to his brothers. He knows his brothers did it. He knows and he still acknowledges his brother's evil motives, but he says God used it. Could it not also be that way, be the case in your life as well? Could it not? That God had a greater purpose in something. Something you couldn't see, maybe something you couldn't know, 
an ultimate purpose maybe to make you more like Christ? And here's the thing. If He can't use the suffering of your life, then the very time you need Him the most, He's unavailable to you. Think about that. If He can't also work through the hard things, through the suffering, through the evil that comes upon us, the very time you need Him most and feel most desperate, He's not available to you. He's not there. He'd be sitting back and saying, you're on your own with this one. And a weak and impotent, unable to redeem our worst moments. And that's not, this is just not the picture of the God of the Bible. This is. That's the picture. What's another one? What's the greatest act of evil uh, ever done by humans? What is it? Think about it for a minute. What's the greatest act of evil ever done by humans? I hear, I hear some people saying, I heard crucifixion, I think, I heard murdering Jesus. Yeah, the greatest act of evil ever done in humanity, committed by real people, real soldiers, a real Pontius Pilate, real people. And yet, Peter says this in Acts, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now who's responsible for the evil? Herod? Pilate? The Gentiles and Jews that were there and who were part of his death? A few verses earlier, Peter says to a group, you crucified him. He lays the blame at their feet. And yet, what are the odds that God sent Jesus to earth and said, I've got this plan to get him to the cross to pay for sin. I hope it happens. Because it'll be really good for humanity. I hope it happens. No, it says. He even says he predestined it to take place. His hand, it says, and his plan. His hand and his plan. And yet he was grieved, wasn't he? Even though in some way he brought it about. He was grieved at his son's death. He didn't love it. Didn't give him pleasure. He didn't do evil himself. That's what the Bible says. He used it. He used it. I don't know how else to read that. Or Joseph's life. Or all the other stories of the Bible. They meant it for evil. God used it and flipped it for good. Where would we be without it? Couldn't that be the case in your life as well? Could it be? So our first truth, evil and suffering are a result of the fall, not an argument against God's existence. And our second one is this, even in my suffering, God is all-powerful and loving. Even in your suffering, God is all-powerful and loving. And you might be thinking right now, I don't know. God all-powerful and all-loving, I don't know. And many people, I've wrestled this with myself, feel the need to kind of um, get God off the hook here and protect God and say, well, God is all loving. I believe that. And a lot of us go there a lot easier. God is all loving. loving, I believe that. It's true. And I know he doesn't do evil. That's true. I know he doesn't take pleasure in evil. That's true. So he he must be absolutely not involved at all in any way when bad stuff happens. I understand the temptation to go there, to protect God's name, protect his reputation. We do want to protect him from saying that God ever does evil. He doesn't. 
He doesn't. The problem can kind of be solved if you just deny one or the other. You just deny that He's all-powerful and in control, or you just deny that He's all-loving. It can kind of be solved. But if that's the case, there's no comfort in our suffering. There's no comfort in our suffering. There's no hope in our suffering. And then God kind of becomes captive and contingent on our actions. He kind of sits back, kind of wringing his hands. I hope she gets out of this one. I hope he gets out of this one. And that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. So what I want us to do, I want us to gently, because I know this is hard, and I know this is real, because each and every one of us has suffered. And we will again. But I want us to gently reaffirm both of these truths for a couple minutes just by taking a look at a few passages. We're just going to read them and let them kind of wash over us and hear them and let the, God's, work do, uh, God's Word do God's work. As we hear and reaffirm that God is, yes, all-powerful, and God is, yes, all-loving, both at the same time. He's all-powerful. First, you might use the word sovereign king. Nothing's outside of his control. Nothing's outside of his permission, you might say. He's all-powerful. Let's hear his word, let it wash over us, humble us, and reply really with this, who are you, O God? Who are you, O God? And man, that you are mindful of him. Take a look. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. All. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does. All that he pleases. Lamentations 3, the passage we read, it goes on to say, Who has spoken? And it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come as we experience them as humans? Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All-powerful. Isaiah 46. I love this one. There's so much comfort in these verses. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There's no other. I'm God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. The weight of Scripture speaks. And that's just a few verses. It speaks of a God who is all-powerful. He's spoken. He does what He pleases. He will accomplish His purposes. He's the only wise, sovereign King. Nothing's outside of His power. Nothing's outside of His permission. Even the tiniest details of your life are in his hand and your suffering and if we left it there if we left it there he'd be a god to only be feared but he's also loving he's also loving here here's a few of those 
the Lord, the Lord, the God. Even this is Old Testament now. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Here's another one, Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's another one, 1 John 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word, but it means He he paid it. He took on God's wrath. He's both all-powerful and all-loving. Sovereign King and loving Savior. If you deny this one, the omnipotence of God is power, you end up with a weak God who wants to prevent evil, but he can't. Deny the goodness and the love of God, and you end up with a wicked God who can prevent evil, but he won't. He's both all-powerful and all-loving. You might, you might say, okay, Jeff, this, I, okay, I hear this, I hear it, I see the verses, they're in front of me, but this really is just a bunch kind of a heady philosophy, you might even say. Or, you know, just kind of intellectual stuff. You don't know what I've actually been through. You don't know what I've actually been through. This doesn't cut it for me. This does not cut it for me. Great, so God's all-powerful and all-loving, but I'm the one suffering not him. I'm the one suffering. You know, I'm not Joseph of the Bible. I'm not Job. Maybe those stories had a clear purpose, but mine? Not mine. God's still on the hook for my suffering. You might. I've wrestled with that. It leads us to our th- third and final truth, and I'm so glad we have it. Look to the suffering of Jesus for hope, and strength. Look to the suffering of Jesus for hope and strength. You're right. I can't give you, no one can, I can't give you today an exact reason behind all our suffering. And I shouldn't try to. It's not our place, that's not my place. Or the tragedy of Sutherland Springs, Texas. If you hear pastors or public speakers try to equate and give reasons for things like that, Jesus didn't let the apostles do that with the blind man, did he? Or the lame man, I think it was. Or the next tragedy that will strike this next week. I can't give you exact reasons behind them. But God does give us the resources to face it. And he gives us the resources to go on. And it's in a suffering Messiah. It's in a suffering Messiah. It's in a crucified Christ. Here's the thing. He put himself on the hook and suffered for you. He did. He put himself on the line and suffered for us. No other religion has this. 
No other religion has this in all of the world. A God who willingly suffered just like one of his creatures. No other religion has this. Nobody else outside of Christianity has the resources to face another day when trials come. Nobody has this. Think about it. Islam doesn't have this. That's offensive to them. A God who would suffer and die. Buddhism doesn't have this. Even Judaism can't recognize this. God suffered more than anyone ever has in Jesus Christ. He put himself on the hook. Or actually put himself on the cross. He did it. Remember his approaching death. Remember what Scripture says. Think of the suffering of Christ now as He came, His death approached, and He said to His disciples as He was there, He said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. There was deep suffering there. A sorrow to the point of death. He's distressed. He's troubled. The Gospels go on to describe somebody who was in a state almost of physical shock as He sweat drops of blood. Somebody who was in absolute anguish and physical shock. So much so that he tries to avoid his death. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Let it pass. It's a man in deep anguish, in deep suffering. He suffered immensely physically. As he died on the cross for your sin, so someday evil and suffering would absolutely end over with it's the one reason i can give you evil exists so it could be nailed to the cross that's the one reason i know it exists so it could be nailed to the cross and god would be glorified but it also means this he can identify with you like no one else can he can identify with you like no one else can even in your body as he had a body as you suffer as you're lonely or as you feel abandoned in life, or as you feel physical pain, or emotional pain, or sadness, or rejection, because He was too. He was too. He was too. But do you remember also when He was there on the cross, some of His final words, some of the final things He said, His final words of agony, do you remember them? Jesus lived in perfect, loving harmony with God the Father. We're talking the Trinity now, which other religions don't even have. God, Jesus lived in perfect, loving harmony with God the Father for eternity. The best relationship that's ever been. The best. The perfect, loving relationship. He's always had the perfect intimately eternal deep and loving relationship with the father the greatest pain in life is not the loss of relationship isn't it whether through brokenness in a relationship think about your own life or in the relationship through losing the life of someone is not the greatest it is the greatest pain in life and the deeper the relationship, the longer you've had it, the deeper it is, the greater the what? The pain. I mean, if an acquaintance, just somebody you kind of know in passing, tells you, 
They want nothing to do with you. They turn your back on you or even pass away. It stings a little, doesn't it? It does. It stings a little. kind of hurts. It hurts a bit. How about if it was a longtime friend? Longtime friend. You've known them for years. Your relationship is deep. It hurts even more, doesn't it? When they walk away. How about pass away? How about a family member or a spouse who you've been deeply intimate for decades? That pain, that hurt, isn't it? We've all lost someone. It's increasingly and qualitatively more. What about the pain of Jesus? Didn't just lose an acquaintance for you. Didn't just lose his best friend for you. But he lost on the cross the eternal, infinite, loving relationship with the Father from all eternity when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest moment of pain that's ever been experienced on earth. The physical pain, yes, was horrible. But this was way worse. Because nobody had ever had a truer, deeper, more intimate relationship when God the Father turned his back on his Son for you. The physical pain was small compared to the spiritual pain he felt. You know, we can't have the actual reason behind any given circumstance of suffering. But when you look at that, it can't be because God's aloof. It can't be because God doesn't care. It can't be because he doesn't love you. Do you see that? Do we see that this morning? Some of us need to lay down the pain. Lay down the suffering that you've been bearing, that you've been harboring, that you've been holding, and lay it down at the cross. Just look right, look at him. Look what he did for you and I. He was willing to suffer more than all of us combined, if you could somehow combine it all, for all of us. More than all of us, for all of us. But he resurrected too, didn't he? He resurrected too. Which means someday he's going to undo all of it. Someday he's going to undo all of it. All of it. Every pain you've ever felt, he's going to undo all of it. I love this little C.S. Lewis quote. It gets at the heart of this. He said, they say some of temporal suffering. No future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that, even that agony, into a glory. It means that the suffering of here and now, when it's finally undone, will in some way make the joy of heaven and God even greater. I know it's hard for us to feel and see and trust at times. That's what that means. It means that in some way it will make the joy of our eternal life that much sweeter even when heaven works backwards and it undoes, is that the word? Recreates everything that was lost. Everything. New morning mercies. We read the passage. It'll be the greatest morning ever, won't it? The greatest morning of mercies ever when he resurrects us and brings us all home and undoes everything evil that had ever happened. And heaven will be all the sweeter for it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never 
come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So remember today, in your suffering, as evil comes, or you experience it, that it comes from the fall. Not an argument against God. Remember, even in the midst of it, God is all-powerful and loving in your suffering. And how do you know? Look to Jesus for our hope and our strength in suffering. Because he's taken more on than anyone else and put himself on the hook like no other God when he suffered for us. The reason we can sing in a moment on the heels of Sutherland, Texas, on the heels of suffering in our life, the reason we're going to be able to sing, it is well. Let's pray. Lord, this